today on the Starving Art Podcast, I sit down with my friend Alessandra, dancer-choreographer based out of Atlanta, Georgia, who is a fellow graduate of the Lions Ballet BFA program. We talked about the current state of the dance world with regards to the COVID crisis, as well as the Black Lives Matter protests and the efforts at achieving racial inclusion in the dance industry as well as graduating into a pandemic and her hopes and dreams for the future. It was great to sit down with her and connect to the BFA family that I came out of, and I hope you'll enjoy the conversation. We are now on all streaming platforms. I have Spotify. I have Apple Podcasts. I have Stitcher. You name it, we're on it. So go to whichever one is your favorite and subscribe and give me good ratings and leave wonderful comments so that people will know that I'm here to do business. (laughs) And thank you so much for listening. I always get a kick out of doing this and I hope you enjoy the episode. Joining me on the show today is my good friend Alessandra, uh, former member of the Lions Ballet BFA program at Dominican University and former classmate of mine. How are you, Alex? Like, how's quarantine life treating you? (laughs) I'm good. Uh, First of all, thank you for having me on this show. Quarantine life, I mean, it has its ups and downs like everyone else, but yeah. You're back home with your parents, right? Yeah, I'm in Atlanta with my mom and my stepdad. Gotcha. And I know it has been a crazy journey to get there. You have the unfortunate distinction as being a member of the graduating class that got most acutely swept up in the coronavirus shutdown. And I mean, being in the class above you, it was, you know, really heart wrenching to see how your last semester of school got canceled, essentially. Can you tell me a little bit about what that experience was like of, if I recall correctly, it was just after spring break that everything started shutting down? Uh, Yeah, like right during spring break, we, the seniors were still obviously in San Rafael and the juniors had gone to ACDA. And they were actually telling us that people were leaving Mm -hmm. the conference because of um, coronavirus. And we were all... ACDA, for those who don't know, is American College Dance Association. And they run a yearly conference where um, college dance programs from all over... I think they split it into regions. So we were the West region. So a bunch of colleges from all over come to uh, one school and perform and take class together and have a cool collaborative experience it's really great if it ever happens again people should go check it out (laughs) right but yeah the juniors were at acda and apparently a bunch of the schools that were there were leaving early because of covid um so we sort of had like inklings that there was something that was like something big was coming but Mm -hmm. otherwise it all happened over spring break for us it was really surreal like all at once like suddenly we we had school normally planned, obviously, and then 
we were told that we were going to take a couple days off. And then the very next day, they told us that we were going to take a couple months off and push back the final performance. And then not soon or not that long after that, it was completely everything canceled. So it was very like a really fast cascade within the week. Wow. I would say. Man, I can't even fathom how that quickly it going from all of my senior year moments are on to they are completely off. So I know that the big casualty of that was you didn't get to have your show at Yerba Buena. (sighs) Yeah, I'm sorry. But I have heard that there's plans in the works to get y'all back on stage there whenever things get back up and running. Have you been clued into any of that my class and i had talked with marina very marina the bfa director very briefly about potentially working over the summer together and putting something together for the show in october when lines would have their home season Mm -hmm. i don't believe that that's gonna happen anymore i haven't heard anything else that's in the works but if there is i would definitely be happy to fulfill my Yerba destiny. (laughs) Yes, of course. It is your destiny. And I mean, is there even a home season anymore? So everything just keeps in that same unfortunate pattern of just being pushed back and pushed back. Yeah. But you did get to have some quintessential moments. I mean, most notably, you did graduate. Congratulations on graduating. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I'm sure it felt a little hollow being on quarantine break but how does it feel to have graduated from this safe learning environment of the BFA program into the quote-unquote real world and to not be able to capitalize on all of the dreams that you've been gunning for going around auditioning for companies living that scrappy young dancer life how has um the pandemic changed your feelings on how the dance career is going to work? It's definitely made me uh, realize that I don't have to rush things as much as I originally thought. Mm. When I initially, back in high school, when I was getting ready to apply for colleges, I actually didn't want to go to college at all because I thought that I needed to be a professional dancer at 17 and then a principal by 21. And I felt like I needed to rush my way through my career because I thought that it was going to end when I was like 35. Mm -hmm. And in having different mentors over the summer and in having this experience of a pandemic happening right as I'm starting my career, it has made me realize that 21 is still very young, even for a dancer. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And it's helped me be a bit more forgiving because I can't control the pandemic. I can't control whether companies are hiring or not. Uh, While I did go to a few auditions before this whole mess happened, nothing really, nothing that I wanted to take came from them. So Mm -hmm. I've found that I have the thesis is that I found that I have more time and I actually have enrolled in a training program in Canada, which is happening remotely for me right now as I get my student visa cleared. But 
I'm returning to being a quote unquote student because right now I feel like that's the best place for me since there isn't a whole lot of professional work going on that I can continue to refine myself and dig deeper into various ideas and movement qualities and textures so that I can, when the world comes back, I'll be able to come back a lot better. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I mean, I don't want to call it a pivot, but like that's such an incredible takeaway, both in the sense of there is still work to be done and I can still keep improving as a dancer, but also the realization of there is time is something that I struggle with. I know other dancers struggle with. And the idea that there is a limit on your time as a dancer and that you need to be progressing in the field as quickly as possible in order to enjoy that pinnacle when you get there kind of does a disservice to all the steps along the way. So it's really great that you've been able to embrace that idea. So it's awesome to hear that you are enrolled in a training program, and I imagine that's going to be for the next year, right? It is a more flexible program, so it could be between one and four years. They told me the official length is four years, but they told me that because I already had, I already have a BFA that I would probably not need all four years. It's a case-by-case basis. Well, that's awesome that they're being so inclusive of your journey in that, but other than this program, which I imagine just started, how have you been keeping up your dancing since quarantine hit? It's been a journey, to say the least. <laughs> <laughs> when everything first shut down, I was really against online classes. I didn't think that they captured the spirit of dance. I didn't think that I would be able to get a whole lot out of staring at a screen and moving my body alone in my room. I was very close-minded in the beginning because I didn't understand it and I didn't want to. And I was so frustrated and angry and sad and just all, there were too many emotions for me to be able to take in a new uh, solution. So for a while, BFA classes continued online. So I did those to keep up attendance, but otherwise I really didn't dance. I played uh, there's a video game called Beat Saber, which is basically, <laughs> uh-huh. uh, it's the, it's you're in VR and you slice blocks to music and it's really fun. And it was a really nice way for, I'm realizing now in hindsight, for me to stay connected to my musicality and my physicality um, because I still had that craving. But for, yeah, for maybe, I want to say two months, I really didn't take any classes outside of the BFA. After that, I started to get over myself, (laughs) essentially, (laughs) and basically tell myself, hey, like, this is your passion. Stuff's not going to open up now, because also in the beginning, I thought that quarantine would be a lot shorter. Sure. As I'm sure many of us did. Yeah, definitely me. Yeah. (laughs) And it was not. So I realized that I needed to make it work. And so I started, I first started with taking Maria's ballet classes because she was someone familiar, someone I knew that I could trust, like I knew how her class would be. Mm-hmm. So I started with taking- Maria Kerr. Yeah, Maria Kerr. Famed, amazing teacher, dancer. Literally one of my biggest inspirations, but- <laughs> Yeah, we're going to talk about her more. Oh, okay. Yeah, she 
she was offering classes, so I took some of hers. I ended up enrolling in a couple summer intensives online. I really found that I had to have a schedule to actually make myself dance in the beginning. Mm-hmm. So I had to be like, I knew that Saturday class was at 1230. I knew that um, if I was doing a summer intensive, I had to be available between these hours. And I knew that like things like that. So I did different workshop series or summer intensives to sort of get myself back in the flow. And from there, a more improvisational practice picked up and I started actually wanting to move of my own accord, not just of someone else uh, basically dragging me from my bed to the ballet bar, i.e. my chair. (laughs) Um, And then it just, it started exploding from there. And now I feel normal for the first time in six months. (laughs) Well, I'm so glad to hear that you found normalcy again. And I mean, that definitely gels with my experience of you as the person who always wants to be moving and is always ready to get up in the studio and bust a move. So um, bust a move. You do bust a move, Alex. I love that phrasing. (laughs) So you mentioned Maria Kerr who is a fabulous teacher at the BFA program and dancer choreographer in the Bay Area. And in some of our past conversations, she's come up as someone who's really been pushing you and someone that you've been able to engage with to, you know, sort of navigate everything that's going on. Can you talk more about your relationship with her and just the general benefit that you've gained from having a mentor figure in a time like this? Yeah. Well, I met her sophomore year and I was terrified of her. Absolutely. Just what couldn't look her in the eye. I was so afraid. A common experience sophomore year. (laughs) Definitely. And she uh, I guess like right away started pushing me more than other teachers I noticed, mm-hmm. which is I I think more her teaching style. But mm-hmm. and then senior year was when I started to be a little bit closer with her. We had talked a few times um, throughout the year just to talk about dance and life. And she had opened up herself as a resource as someone that I could um, confide in. So once the pandemic happened, and then actually after um, George Floyd's murder, uh, she started a Zoom group chat that we had, I believe, two or three meetings that was a place for people of color, but specifically the dark skin or black members of the BFA program for us to basically vent to her. Mm -hmm. And it was a way for us to be heard that we didn't feel basically anywhere else. And so that, again, like made me feel more like I could trust her and confide in her and feel supported by her. And she actually was the person, I sort of briefly mentioned this before, but she was the person that got me back into dancing because I was taking her classes. And then in one of the calls that I had with her, she basically tricked me into doing the line summer program. (laughs) Um, She worded it as it was a workshop and she asked me if I wanted to join a workshop lines was holding and it was not a workshop. It was the pre-professional summer intensive, (laughs) but which was a two week, it was a two week all day affair, but I was still 
once I got there, I was very uh, appreciative that she had pushed me to do that because I think she could sense that I needed some pushing. And then after that, I did a choreographic workshop with her. And she's also been really supportive with me enrolling in this uh, Canadian training program. Mm -hmm. And she's been trying to get me resources out there of people I could connect to. And just in general throughout, I would say throughout my senior year through now, she's been a constant that I've been able to always turn to in the dance world. And I really appreciate that. Yeah, that is incredible. And as much as it stemmed out of the BFA it's a credit to both you and her that this relationship was able to develop and be so beneficial so I I was very amused when you told me about getting tricked into doing the lines and <laughs> that it was masterful on Maria's part but just like such a great uh, <laughs> such a great push as well but yeah, it's just so great that she's been there for you and that even now as you're plotting a move to Canada, you're still getting um, connections and inspiration and conversation with her. So as a part of the outpouring after the George Floyd murder and as a part of your continuing dance exploration, you choreographed a piece in July, I believe it was. That sounds about right. Sounds about right. What is time anymore? Right. <laughs> called Our Voices, which was very much a reflection of the anger and grief around the George Floyd murder, but all the other murders that came before it. Can you tell me how the opportunity to create the piece came about and where your inspiration for the movement came from yeah so adam a lines bfa alum who's a dancer based in the netherlands he taught us a workshop our junior or senior year he taught us a couple of workshops and after that we didn't hear from him but then during the pandemic he reached out to marina who reached out to us ab about the choreographic opportunity his company was doing what was called a 24-hour night hotel and ITE and basically it was a carousel of art that took place over 24 hours so we were just one piece in a much larger picture mm -hmm. that was being live streamed around the world so it was a really cool opportunity to be invited to participate in definitely and you choreographed the work how was the decision to have you choreograph and create the concept for the piece decided on and what was it like to take on the task of being zoom choreographer i didn't actually choreograph it alone it was definitely collaborative when we got the email we were told that we could create a piece about anything as long as it had to do with our experience during the pandemic but of course, um, being the socially conscious people that we are, we decided that the Black Lives Matter movement was something that we really wanted to highlight, especially because a lot of countries that aren't America, sometimes some of them seem to think that Black Lives Matter is less prevalent there or that it's not as relevant, but we wanted to make an awareness for everyone. So we decided on that topic sort of unanimously because I'm... I was the only Black person to participate in the project. I 
thought that I needed to take the leadership role. So the choreographic process, we had a Zoom meeting to sort of establish concept and theme. And then we had another Zoom meeting that where we actually choreographed. And basically we did the most basic thing ever. One person would make a shape or a movement and then we would pass it on to the next person. And we did a few rounds of that. And from there we created a base phrase. And from that base phrase, we each created a sort of remix version of it. So we could retrograde, we could change the order, flip things, turn things, like completely mess it up. And obviously keeping in mind the theme so you wouldn't get too far off course. And then I had each person send me a video of them anywhere they wanted. Um, It could be outside, it could be in their backyard, in their house, wherever. They sent a video of them doing the bass phrase that we all agreed was the same. And then a video of them doing the remixed phrase. And they also, some people sent a little bit of improvisation, which was very (laughs) appreciated. And from there, I just got to work editing. Awesome. And as a part of that editing, you composed the audio and a choice that I thought was really bold and in your face in exactly the right way was your decision to interrupt the piece as a whole in order to list the names of people who were victims of police brutality over the years. So can you tell me about how you got the audio source and what your aim was in making those choices? Yeah, for sure. So the audio was a mixture of beats and sounds that I had created that I sampled just from basic garage band mm-hmm. and uh, footage or audio footage from a protest that I went to, I think, a couple days after George Floyd's death, mm-hmm. which was in Atlanta. So, of course, a very large black population. Martin Luther King is from there. So it's very much the... How do I say this? All of Atlanta was on the same page. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Sure. So the protest was very, very overwhelming in a good way. Like I felt an overwhelming amount of support. There were thousands of people on a hot Atlanta day. It was incredible. So I had recorded some video footage while I was there and just took the audio from that. And then the silence that I added in the middle of it, it lasted for eight minutes and 46 seconds, which was how long that George Floyd was choked to death. And along with that, um, in the video, there's the names of a lot of people that have been victims of police brutality that have lost their lives. Some of them are really well known, like Trayvon Martin, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery. And some of them were lesser known people that I had never known about. And it dated, I believe the dates were between the late 19th century up until 2020. And there's also audio of tear gas in the video that I created. So there's a lot of things that I pulled from a lot of very heavy protest motifs, obviously, but also um, use of silence and basic garage band beats that I sampled. And it's all done to great effect. I'm going to link the piece in the show notes and i really encourage everyone to 
check it out. That was definitely a protest piece. And in some ways, I think it foreshadowed what was coming for the dance industry as a whole. I have definitely seen how the racial justice protests that were sparked by the death of George Floyd have ricocheted into the dance world. I feel like there was a moment where people were talking about Black included POC inclusion in the dance world, but it was sort of a, that would be nice, we should do this, and all the ballet companies were like, oh yeah, that'd be great. And this time around, it was much more like, hey, you said you were going to do this, where is it? So, I mean, how has it felt to see all of these institutions sort of having to really grapple with the meaning of equity and inclusion for the first time? Honestly, it's really annoying (laughs) because I've been Black for almost 22 years now, and you guys are just now recognizing me. And that doesn't even count all the previous Black people that came before me. So it, it it definitely feels like too little too late in a lot of ways, yeah. especially when they release those phony statements that are, oh, we believe in inclusion and we're going to have a Black model represent our, band, our brand, but they don't actually care about the Black model and they don't pay her equally or they don't, you know, like they don't actually back up. They put on a front, basically, is what I'm trying to say. And it's yeah. well, a lot of people, not every company. There are some companies that have some companies like dance companies or like brands that have come out with statements and continue to follow up and actually change policies. And there are some that I would say the majority that haven't. Yeah, I get that. I was listening to another dance podcast, Conversations on Dance. I don't know if you have heard of it. They had Peter Bull, the artistic director of Pacific Northwest Ballet on. And to your point about annoyance, um, he got asked about the impact that all of the protesting has had, especially, you know, up in a place like Seattle, where it's been really heavy. And much like you were saying, it was really frustrating to hear him be like, you know, it was always something that I heard people asking for and I thought we were doing good but then I realized like I'm I'm the person now that's in charge (laughs) of making this happen and if it was going so well where are all the black dancers in my company or anything like that and so I was just like yeah no shit (laughs) but I mean you specifically have had a pretty long history of seeing that sort of empty talk I wanted to ask your opinion about Atlanta Ballet because you trained there and it caught a lot of flack recently for its lack of black dancers specifically black women in the company and to your point of you know empty words do you feel like your experiences at Atlanta Ballet sort of validate that image of people saying we're trying while nothing is actually happening Definitely. I was a student at Atlanta Ballet for about seven years, all through middle school and high school. And I had a lot of really, uh, let's say questionable racial experiences. I was oftentimes the only black person in my class. um, And class sizes were, you know, about 20 students. Mm -hmm which I thought was weird considering we're in Atlanta, but then you think about how high their tuition is and you realize, oh, that's not very accessible. 
So when I was in their pre-professional division, there was one black female dancer in the company. Mm-hmm. In the entire company, there was one black female dancer and there were no black male dancers. Wow. Which in a city was that's really 50 difficult. plus percent black. Right. Yeah. So lack of representation was a huge issue because, I mean, back in the day, like you're training under a school, like I wanted to dance in the company. Their rep at the time with their uh, former artistic director was incredible. And I really looked up to the company members, but I couldn't see myself there because there was no one like me in the company. So there, like, I didn't think that it was possible, which was disheartening Mm -hmm. to (laughs) say the least. So when I was in the pre-professional division, as a member of the pre-professional division, you get to perform with the company two times a year during the Nutcracker production, which actually the whole school can participate in, and during the spring show, which is usually more of a storybook ballet like Snow White or Cinderella, something like that. And I don't want to sound cocky, but I was in the highest level at the time, and I was Mm -hmm. very... I'll say very technically advanced compared to a lot of the a lot of my white classmates and I was never given any role any pre-professional role basically. I was never mm-hmm. given any pre-professional role. What meanwhile there were certain people whose parents had a lot of influence over the ballet that would get one step below company roles or they would get chosen for different parts or to work with people like Twyla Tharp when I was completely looked over despite being older or having more experience or having stronger technique. And this happened all the time. Like Mm -hmm. for the entire time I was there, I was overlooked and I had to work five times as hard to get half a quarter even of what some of my whites, my white colleagues got. And it was definitely very frustrating um, to be pouring so much into something and be getting so little back. But there was a culture created at Atlanta Ballet that supported that. And Mm -hmm. I haven't been there in four years since I graduated, but I, from what I hear from current students and current company members, it's still going on. And it's actually Mm -hmm. gotten worse with, the shift in direction so gotcha. it's disheartening to hear yeah that is really disheartening to hear especially after such a public such a public criticism but also such a public response of oh no we promise we're doing better it brings to mind so many broader questions that the pandemic has also brought up first and foremost in my mind this idea that funding structures And like the survival of so many of these ballet companies depends on rich, old, usually white donors who Mm -hmm. underwrite productions and make the seasons possible. And so, you know, of course, we're going to cater to them because they're the ones giving us money. If we start branching off into anything revolutionary or, you know, making big waves even even if the big wave is necessary, like including the half of Atlanta's population who is Black, you know, I've just seen since the pandemic has started all of the ways that that sort of structure is just not going to work moving forward. 
Not in the least because old people are the ones who are going to get coronavirus if they come to the theater. (laughs) (laughs) I said what I said. (laughs) They'll all be gone anyway. We don't need their money. I mean, well, we still need their money, but they might be gone. (laughs) (laughs) You're right, though. (laughs) And in... In that way, I think the like biggest signs of hope and change that I've seen have been coming from smaller collectives in the contemporary dance world. Oh, of course. Where this sort of radical is the wrong word, but expansive change in how dance work is presented and what types of work are being presented. I that's where I see the most change happening and I mean, do you do you see ballet being able to survive in a world where they are so shut off from what day-to-day reality is like? I, I don't see it as sustainable. Yeah, I think that ballet as a movement practice is definitely sustainable. Hmm. I think that ballet, I'm talking about ballet, like classical ballet. Sure. I think that classical ballet as a performance art will sort of turn into how we view those Shakespearean actors that only do Shakespeare, Mm -hmm. um, where it'll be looked at as a piece of history. For example, when you go to see Romeo and Juliet, like the Shakespeare play, you're not going to see that every year or even like every few years. Like that's sort of like a once in a once in a while or maybe a one time only experience. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like if you were to see Romeo and Juliet, the ballet, I think that in the coming future, it'll be more like that, where it's more of a once in a while, like sort of one-off experience of like, oh, this was a part of our history, but it doesn't reflect our society now. So we're moving on. Sure. And in the process of moving on, do you see any examples of companies or performer collectives or just in the dance industry of the progress that you want to see being made? Yeah, I do. Like you said before, they're all smaller companies or just groups of dancers, collectives. But I can see that there is change happening because change was already happening before um, the Black Lives Matter movement went viral. Because there have always been companies that have said, oh, we want black and brown bodies. We want bodies that aren't stick thin. We want people with imperfect turnout or especially in the contemporary side or the postmodern side, there's always been an openness. Back in the day when modern was starting to become a bigger thing, more contemporary forms and postmodern forms were becoming more of a thing, they were seen as super, I'll take your word, expansive because the ballet world was so restrictive because the the ballet world was very white at the time and it was very um, one body type. And I think that the early pioneers of modern dance and contemporary forms wanted to break away from that. And so a lot of them, you know, don't have perfect turnout, don't have perfect feet, are not white, etc. So now I think that contemporary forms and modern dance forms are still leading the way. Obviously, they're not perfect. But a great example is the school that I'm attending. It's called Modus Operandi. Mm-hmm. And... It's based in Vancouver, and we just had to send in our student profiles, 
which was basically just them getting to know us and getting to know our history a little bit. And even that right off the gate was really inclusive. They asked um, what your preferred name was, um, how to spell it, how to pronounce it, etc. They asked what your preferred pronouns were. They asked how our training was before, where we had trained, how we had trained, any relevant mental health or physical health conditions that they that we may think they needed to know about. Sure. Um, and so automatically I felt more included without them having to do a whole lot. It was a really basic thing. They just asked, who, who are you? Yeah. What's, what's been your experience so far? And just being seen like that, I haven't felt that way ever in the dance community. Mm-hmm. So it was incredibly, unfortunately, incredibly special <laughs> that, they even thought to do that in a school of maybe 40 students so yeah i just the idea that they would ask about any mental health issues that you may be dealing with is like something that kind of floors me as a dancer because the mentality is always like you deal with your mental issues when you're done with rehearsal yeah. <laughs> Literally. and i mean i will be so humbled as to admit that like even in my limited choreographic experience it's easy to lean into that idea of like your life as a person is all well and good but right now like you are my dancer and Mm. I'm gonna do what I need to do with you and then you can figure everything else out so it's great to hear I have such an opposite experience well I'm always like yes tell me your problems (laughs) (laughs) well I would say that that makes you a better choreographer than I am no no. more emotional I guess (laughs) sure but I mean it you know really stems from how we grew up in this and the ways that we saw our leaders acting and enforcing the unwritten codes that even now we're all reflecting as we go forward so even little things like taking five minutes to say please tell me about who you are so that in this training process i don't step over any of those um Mm -hmm. boundaries that you know are there that's super important and great to hear something that i really wanted to ask and something that i've been thinking about in the process of trying to include marginalized bodies in concert dance specifically is just this idea of the body as a statement and specifically the black body as a statement it has often been said that a black body on stage is says something about who the company is or what the piece is about and in an age where we are trying to do away with the um see this is where i get tripped up i get tripped (laughs) up because on one hand i am trying to convey that there is a specialness there is a difference and that's not something that Mm -hmm. ever goes away Mm -hmm. but on the other hand i don't know in your mind do you see it as something that we're trying to get over or is it something that needs to be assimilated to be even more highlighted like is the end goal a goal where seeing a black dancer being the white swan 
is like not worth mentioning or is the end goal a dance world where we take our whole experience in and who we are in to create this more complete vision of what a piece is or who we are. Does that make any sense? Kind of. I mean, I think that everybody's body says something because, I mean, when I look at you, you're a white man and like you can't hide that. (laughs) No, I cannot. And when I look at my mom, she's a black woman. Like there, I think that everybody's body can be political as people like to say because for example if you see a white man on stage in some contemporary work beating down on a black man that says something (laughs) um Mm -hmm. on both ends not just about the black man so i think that there's a hyper fixation on the black body as being political when really everyone's body says something about them i also think that it's a similar thing with Asian people because, I mean, while Black people have different features and different um, colored skin and different sized nose or whatever, there are other ethnicities that have very distinctive features, um, like Southeast Asian people having more slanted eyes or hooded eyes. That's a very clear physical difference. Like, can the white swan be Asian? Like, can she play anything other than chinese a nutcracker like same with like indian people like can they play anything other than arabian even though they're not arabian <laughs> like even though arabian in itself is just the worst <laughs> just the nutcracker in general is just uh, outdated <laughs> to say the least yeah i mean i i find myself asking in a world where ballet companies are actually committed to not being racist can we do Nutcracker? You have to change it a lot. You have to change it a lot. And even the people who do like, oh, it's coffee from Arabia. Like, no, (laughs) not really. (laughs) Okay. Okay. But she's still doing the same thing. (laughs) She's still in that stereotypical ass costume doing the that same princess thing. jasmine costume the princess jasmine costume which by the way to anyone who runs a nutcracker please stop putting your teenage dancers in that princess jasmine <sighs> costume it's gross um it's creepy it's creepy and it's gross and the choreography is usually way too sexualized but anyway it also fetishizes asian women yeah, it's just it's all bad and, i mean one of the associated movements to what we're talking about is i'm sure you've heard about final bow for yellow face i have not oh um so it was a uh petition and a website and kind of movement that has been going around ballet companies that i forget who started it it might have been edward liang the artistic director of columbus ballet i believe i might be wrong mm. um essentially just calling out all of the uses of yellow face in dance and i mean again we just finished talking about chinese like every year if you're gonna do a nutcracker you are appropriating yellow face so 100 percent. it was a call for companies to change their nutcrackers and you know really get rid of 
the offensive things and commit to change. And um, I think it had a good response, but clearly it's the work is never done. And one of the things that, you know, kind of stumps me about the process of radical change to be inclusive in the ballet world specifically is how much of the canon also needs to be very changed or done away with completely. But I suppose moving forward, we will find out just how much of it needs to be changed or done away with completely. Do you feel the responsibility to be a leader of change because of your race or who you are as a person in general? Or do you feel like that idea of marginalized people leading the way is an extra responsibility that's placed on them? Um, I can see both sides. I can see that it's really annoying and honestly a joke that people expect Black people to fix this whole Black Lives Matter thing or that people expect Asian people to go to every dance company and tell them to stop doing Chinese. Like it, It's ridiculous that people expect non-white artists or non-white activists to fix problems that white people cause like white people should be fixing their own problems however historically black women have led the way for many a fight (laughs) pride to just name one of them gay rights to name one of them sure so i definitely think that in some ways it is in my blood like it's in my history it's in uh, my personality quite frankly to lead change and to not stand for things that I don't believe in Mm -hmm. or not stand for injustices that are happening. So I tend to lean more towards the side of I want to make change, but not every, not every non-white person will agree with me, obviously. Sure. But I do think that had, for example, this most recent wave of Black Lives Matter is a great example. Black people led that. Yeah. Or are leading that. Are leading that, that wouldn't, yeah, currently have been for the past forever. So that type of change wouldn't happen without us, but it also wouldn't happen without allies. So sure. it really is, I think, honestly, when it comes down to it, being the Libra that I am, it's about balance. <laughs> sure. Um, I think that everybody has a responsibility to cultivate positive change. I don't think that it necessarily has to do with ethnicity, but people can definitely feel certain draws towards certain issues based on their ethnic background or whatever, their Mm -hmm. personal experiences. Yeah, definitely. Well, here's to change and here's to the fight continuing even. I mean, in some ways I feel like this moment I was going to say even in the midst of a pandemic, but I think that everyone has kind of realized that this is the cards on the table moment where if everything is crumbling anyway, the only way we're going to rebuild is fairly. Exactly. And that's heartening to see. But before we wrap up, is there anything you want to say to the audience, to the world, whatever floats your boat? If I were to say anything to anyone, or rather, I guess this is just stuff that I would want to hear someone say to me, I would say keep dancing, even when you don't feel like it. Even if your dance is 
you playing Beat Saber, <laughs> even if your dance is just taking a second to breathe and be in your body, do something. Wear your mask. <laughs> Avoid leaving the house. Yeah. But if you do leave the house, please wear your mask and wash yeah. your hands I don't know why the whole washing your hands thing has gotten big now because I thought we were all doing that before. But <laughs> um, please wash your hands and wear a mask, um, not just for yourself, but for the person that is either in your life or knows someone in your life that is immunocompromised. Cherish everything. I think we've all learned that we need to cherish the small things more. Um you never know when something will get canceled or some someone will be taken away from you. So definitely cherish and love each other and yourself. And remember that you have time. 21 is not old. 31 is not old. 41 is also not old. You don't have to be a 15-year-old superstar <laughs> to be successful. Yeah. So that's all I got. Yes. Amen to that. Well, Alex, thank you so much for sitting down and talking with me. I really appreciate it. And I will link to your social. I will link to your piece, Our Voices, and anything else that we drag up as an appropriate way to engage with you. But really, this has been a great conversation, and I'm so glad that you could have it with me. Yeah, thank you for having me. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you want to keep up with the show, uh, hear about any new episode releases, and get some behind-the-scenes info about the process of creating the show, and hear more about the figures that I talk about, you can follow me on Instagram at starvingartpod. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you gather some strength and encouragement from the work that I'm doing. Talk to you soon.